What a jam. What a song. Funk number 49. James Gang, Joe Wallace doing their business. God, it seems like such a shame to even have to turn it down to listen to me speak. But nonetheless, here we are again, folks. Episode 19. This is Inside the Whale. I'm Doug Cody. Joining me today is Funk number 49. I'll say arguably one of the greatest rock songs. Joe Walsh. I mean, if you're a riff guy, that opening is as heavy as riff as it gets. What a cool, cool rock song. I love it. Joe Walsh is the man. And it uh, it's pertinent to the episode today. And uh, I should probably explain that. But first, I want to know how everyone's doing. Hope your week's going well. Uh, it's Wednesday. I'm recording this uh, in my bedroom because the last time I did it, I woke up the baby. If you listen to the last episode. So I'm in the bedroom trying to record this, but uh, I can't wait to get this episode out uh, to you guys. Hopefully you're listening. Maybe you're working. Maybe you're on a on a job site somewhere. Maybe you're cooking dinner and throwing on Inside the Whale. That's kind of the way I envisioned uh, people listening to this podcast. It would kind of grow and people it, uh, would throw it on while they're cooking or maybe uh, on a car drive you'd listen to it. Um, either way, I'm glad you clicked on it. This is episode 19. My guest today is Robert Cucuzzo of N Magazine, editor, and uh, more importantly, an author, and just completed uh, his first book. And he was nice enough to sit down and talk. And what a story, uh, the process. We really get into the details of what it takes to... Uh, write a book and especially this topic about the you know Rob is a ballsy guy he he was passionate and knew kind of almost a calling uh that he needed to write this book about this legendary skier Doug Coombs who I didn't uh have to say I didn't know much about but hearing his story and uh hearing Rob tell it and hearing Rob's process of writing the book I was blown away um of the the heaviness of going in and uh, going trying to write the story of someone that's passed away, having to go talk to that person's wife and say, "Hey, I want to tell the story of your husband." It's heavy, man. It's a big, big undertaking. I don't think that I could ever do something like that. But Rob, uh, he's done it, and it was a struggle. And you'll you'll hear that in the conversation. It was a. Uh, a real eye-opener for me. You know, uh, we did it yesterday, and even uh, all today I went on a walk, and I, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. So it was an, it, it was an impactful conversation. I, I was really taken by, uh, you know, his commitment. And there are a lot of themes in the conversation, too, about people people's decisions to make changes and put themselves out there to try and create a life that they want and pursue the things that they want whether it's artistic or business or and uh, Rob's one of those guys, you know, he's living it and he, and he breathes it. And I feel like uh, we kind of connected on that. We're both sort of, uh, we have these passions and visions that we want to do and uh, he's doing it though. So, um, you know, Doug Coombs, uh, I, I have since uh, the conversation, I went and started looking into his legacy and Rob's doing it. He's keeping that legacy alive. And uh, the book will come out, I think, a year from now. But uh, I should say this too: I'm, I'm very, I'm enamored with authors. Uh, I'm, I'm a failed writer, 
as we you'll hear in the podcast, I actually uh, I started out trying to be a copywriter, and those dreams were shot down. And I actually uh, brought the letter out and showed Rob the letter or the email that was given to me by a woman at Gray Advertising. It was like, beat it, kid. And you'll hear that. <laughs> it's the first time I publicly uh, talked about that. And that was pretty interesting to share it with a, with a professional writer. So it was kind of cool because, uh, you know, I'm never going to be a writer. I have to stick to the things I can do best. But I do enjoy it. And I guess I'm very impressed. I'm impressed with Rob. Uh, and uh, his ability to tackle something as heavy and challenging as, as writing, you know, a book about uh, a famous skier that's since passed and then trying to tell his story right and do the work and do the details. And other people had tried. Other people tried to tell the story but didn't get to do it, and Rob finished it. So uh, for that, congratulations. And the reason we were playing Funk uh, number 49, I sent Rob an email and I said, hey, what uh, what was a song or what was a something that had the essence of this guy Doug Coombs? And he said, uh, "What comes to mind was Funk Forty Nine. I thought it was perfect. You know, all those Warren Miller ski films. So that's why we played that in the, in the intro. And we'll play it. We'll play it in the outro too. But you know, let's get to the conversation, folks. I think it's time. Uh, one of one of the best episodes. I think they're all great, but th- this one I, I've been thinking about a lot, and I just I really can't wait to get it to you guys. So let's get to the conversation. Here we go, folks. It's time to go inside the whale. Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Rise. He rises. <laughs> Everyone's got a story out here. So, you know, I don't know. Anyway, that's how I kind of got the idea. And I thought Inside the Whale was kind of cool. Perfect. (laughs) So, um, and then Floyd helped me do that intro. And then kind of build it from there. But the response has been great. And people that I would never have have expected reach have reached out and said hey you know i listened to episode uh, billy sherry episode that was great man it was really cool so it's starting to build i think like anything consistency you have to be you know so many people start things and don't finish it yeah no yeah, yeah. And <laughs> as a writer you know that it, yeah. right? right so you know i just just trying to be consistent and be uh really bring something cool to the community people could throw on while you're working you know if you're list the idea was if you were like banging nails or you're cutting in your shop you could throw it on and be like hey oh i've seen that guy around but now i know more of this guy's story totally. you know and it's just like you said i mean this place is i mean like billy sherry is a perfect example of someone who's just fascinating the deeper you dig or gene man's another one gene man was another, great yeah just like man that's what makes this place interesting you know as you come across those guys and and that's uh, you know i've had this been thinking about it recently just about the misperception of nantucket and how to how do you combat that what is the misperception well i think the misperception is that well it depends on who you're asking who the misperception is coming from i think there's a big misperception off island that this is just this community devoted to the one percent and you know and all that goes with it and although there's definitely a shred of truth to that 
as far as who the population is. It's way more than that as far as the year-round community and how that element of the island works with making everything kind of run and allows these creative people to really lead a unique existence and do creative pursuits. And so I, you know, it's, I'm kind of torn between these two different things where there's this, people like to bash them here on the island. And as much as it's easy to do, it's also, you got to kind of look at this whole situation. Like we're, you know. I've started, I, I agree with you. I'm starting to pull away from that because it's easy to focus on that, I think. Um, I think that you slowly start to see it. Like you said, there are a lot of people with interesting stories. And, you know, one thing, I got out here in December, the, the community is strong. There's a really strong community of people out here. And, totally. you, and you get a sense, and this is the season now where I feel like you start to get a sense of that. And, uh, you know, I think the narrative of Nantucket is, exists out there. And then until you spend time, like any place, until you spend time there and really invest in it, yeah, I don't know. It's like yeah. anything, I guess. If you put enough energy into it, you get out what you want, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also when you get into the, into the community, you start talking to different people. You know, it's, it's almost like a domino effect where you see someone doing something interesting and it motivates you to pursue what you're doing. And I mean, really, this, this community is insane when it comes to like the talent pool. Yeah, it it photographers or actors or artists. I mean, it's just my only concern, Rob, was that, and I've only been here five years. Was that it was just it's getting harder and harder for people to 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 do that. And Billy Sherry actually had an interesting take on it. He thought that people will figure out a way. Just said it's hard. It's hard. Housing's an issue out here. It's harder and harder for creative types to maintain an existence on Nantucket. You know, maybe there's, some, yeah. but he, Billy Sherry was saying that he's like, wow, well, people figure it out. They've been figuring it out for years. Right. So, and I hadn't thought of it in that perspective that it's kind of true. People figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. I think that, yeah, maybe the troubling thing that I deal with is you start to lose sight of what's the, why we, why'd you came here in the first place? You know, when, hmm. you, when yeah. you're occupying a lot of your time, at least for me, when I'm occupying my time during the summer in the office, not really doing the things that I did when I first moved out here. So we should get into that. When yeah. did you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Arlington, Massachusetts, um, which is just a suburb 20 minutes outside of Boston. Um, and I actually- What high school? I went to Boston College High School. I actually went to the same high school as Soupy. So, no, okay. But, you know, decade apart. A decade apart. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, so I grew up, you know, commuting into school from Arlington on the train and went through Boston and uh, where'd you yeah. go to college? I went to Holy Cross, okay, uh, in Worcester. So I stayed in Massachusetts. Which Were you an was, English major? I was a history and English double major, but I ended up graduating with a history degree, um, which was kind of a I didn't put it this way, I never I had any real formal training in what I do. I, I was always fascinated in writing, um, but the extent of my training was mostly through writing academic papers as a history major, and um, and it was really only after I got out of school that I started pursuing it more professionally um, or took it more seriously. Um, yeah, that's a history major. That, that's, I was a history major at Gettysburg, so it, you have to, that was, uh, you know, you have to look, be able to write. And it's a love of stories. You know, that's really what history, obviously, is, is all about, is stories. And I grew up, you know, I would attribute my career as a writer as because of the 
people I was around growing up were all storytellers. You know, not necessarily writers, but my grandfathers, uh, my uncles were all these epic storytellers. So whenever we came around the table... Charismatic grandfathers? Yeah, just really, I mean, I remember... Well, that's an Italian thing, though, isn't yeah, it? So was, you're, yeah, you're, exactly. are you 100% Italian? No, I'm half Italian, half Irish. And they both told different Oof. style stories. I mean, my grandfather on the Italian side would tell stories about, you know... The mob guys that were in Brighton at the time when they were when he was raising a family and how they would kind of interact and, and I always found that fascinating. Like and when you say mob guys, are we talking about like Whitey Bulger and that? No, that no, crew, like the like, Italian, the Italian, the mobs, Italian so mobs, like the okay. and stuff like that. Um, which was, do you know a lot about the Boston Italian? I don't know much. I don't really know much about them. I mean, I know just but your these, grandfather. Yeah, I know these anecdotal stories. Um, like Mikey Sulo, who I probably shouldn't say his name on on the radio, but <laughs> a guy that uh, was a hitman in Boston and wasn't necessarily like a buddy buddy of my grandfather's but was at his 50th anniversary and uh, uh, I remember a specific time I was just a young kid at the time and Mikey Sulo was there and he brought his wine you know because obviously these Italian guys make their they own like wine, their so, wine. <laughs> so he brought all this wine for all us to drink you know and he's trying to get everyone to drink it and he says um, to me Mikey Sulo says to me yeah, have some of my wine, you know. And, and I'm How like, old oh, are you? <laughs> probably 14, 15 years old. I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm only 15 years old. Then my grandfather says, no, no, really, have some of his wine. <laughs> <laughs> and when grandpa says have some yeah, of his wine, you... Yeah, exactly. You don't say no to Mikey Sulo. Um, but that was kind of the style of stories that my, that my grandfather told. And then on my other side, uh, my grandfather, Eddie, Fast Eddie Morrissey, was... Um, from Charlestown, had a, eight kids in his family. Was Fast of, Eddie. Fast Eddie. He, used to, he was a legend. Is he the, still around? No, he passed away, but he was a legend at the Suffolk Downs racetracks. That's how he got his name. <laughs> and uh, I remember stories that he told me about seeing Babe Ruth play at Fenway, and he used to roll around with a gang of kids called the Peephole Kids, and they would go and look at watch the game through the, uh, through the peephole. And the, yeah, and the, and the monster. And uh, so I heard all those stories and was just fascinated. And as a kid... You know, I was just through instinct or whatever it was, I was compelled to want to like record them. So I would bring in tape recorders, a movie, uh, you know, like a video camera and, and, and just record them. Do you have any of them stores. still? Yeah, I still have the videotapes and the, and the recordings. And to this day, whenever we have Thanksgiving or anything, I'm always taking out my recorder on my phone and just recording the conversations because you realize, and just as you were saying how this is a oral history of a time and place, you know, so many stories are lost. Um, just they're told and you know you hear them and you like when when the person's gone you wish you could kind of relive that because it was such an important moment yeah and, and uh, to the people listening that they have a connection to it totally you know or even if a stranger is listening to this but for whatever reason they take whatever aspect of our conversation and it really connects with them whether totally. it's you know what we're talking about your passions or what you're doing you know yep and they remember that yep exactly you know? So that's kind of cool. So your mom and dad, are they still around? Yep. My mom and dad, uh, they're still together in Arlington, Mass. And um, they're... What's your old man do? He's a hairdresser in Harvard Square. That's right. I think yeah. I... My parents are fast. I mean, I, I feel You've like... You've told me this before. You have yeah. pretty pretty charismatic and uh, yeah, they're just un- enigmatic uh, yeah. parents. It's a unique couple. Um, my dad is kind of this, you know, heavily tattooed hairdresser who rides a fixed gear bike into Harvard Square. He's been working his own shop for, uh, I mean, 30 plus years at this point. How did he get into cutting hair? Uh, he wanted to be an artist. And my grandfather just thought that was a ridiculous, you know, pursuit. And so he kind of... Well, haircutting is a very traditionally Italian tra- yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, occupation, it's like right? An art- yeah, exactly. Um, but my dad, you know, wanted to be more of a painter and stuff like that. 
And my grandfather didn't think that was, you know, too good of an idea. So he chose that profession as kind of an alternative. And uh, and he's done very well. He's got a really cool clientele base. And he likes it. I mean, he loves to work. Is he a people person? Well, it's interesting because he's kind of like me in the sense that he's he's by nature an introvert. But when it comes to doing his job, he's incredibly charismatic. In fact, you know, I grew up... Um, I grew up only knowing him in a certain capacity. I knew him coming home from work every day and just really being not very talkative and going down watching TV and kind of having dinner and really being just not that personable as I was growing up. And then my first job was to go in and I worked at his shop sweeping hair and like doing a little knickknack jobs. And that's when I really saw him, you know, be himself. Um, that was a stage. Yeah, and you know? exactly. And he was just this you know, performer in a way, but also Interesting. a performer, he was a genuine, he's, he's a genuine guy with his clients and they all really love him because I think he makes them feel really good. And he's got a great way about him that they have been faithful to. I mean, he's got guys that don't even have hair that still come to get their haircut from him, you know, and uh, <laughs> bald guys coming yeah. in just exactly. So you worked at the shop? Yeah. So I worked at the shop. I sat on a radiator, uh, and just kind of, swept hair after they were done and made $35 a day. And, um, and it was a really cool thing because I got to see how hard he worked and realized what he was doing when he was off. You get to see the, the social aspect of a barbershop. Yeah, totally. I mean, just the, yeah, the dynamic of everything. It was a lot of personalities. And Did he have pictures? I always remember my barber from growing up. They always, the thing in barbershops, whenever you had your booth, oh, yeah. you, you put your pictures up of your kids. <laughs> and uh, I, I always remember this one barber that I had. His kids were really ugly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I would have to stare at these kids. Um, but he was the best, though. Bob was the best. But you do. It's, you have such a relationship with your barber. And yeah. it's, it, I guess, even for guys, it's different, but not so different, I yeah, guess, yeah, maybe. Right. You know, they still go in there and yeah. you, hey, how's your week, Bob? <laughs> you know? And yeah. uh, so did your dad have pictures of you? No, he did Not that have... you're, you, and, you have brothers? Yeah, well, my younger brother. And he didn't have pictures of us, but... To this day, I'll meet clients he's had for 30 years, and they'll know everything about me. I mean, they'll know, you know, where I traveled, what I've been working on, you know, every little nuance of my life. That's cool. And, uh, yeah, it is really cool. And they're, you know, he's got a very faithful clientele, and those are the, you know, they essentially help put me through school, you know, by being good clients to my dad. And What's uh, the name of the shop? It's called Leonard Steven Salon. My dad's Steven. And he is a partner? Yeah, yeah. Wow, and it's where is it? In Harvard Square? Harvard Square. It's on JFK. Uh, 54 JFK Street. So there you go, folks. If you're yeah. listening, I'm going to go get my hair. I need a haircut. You should. My dad would love you. I'm going to have to go in there and uh, and introduce myself. You guys get next next time I'm in uh, Boston, I'm going to go do, do it. it, man. Definitely do it. So let's go after college. Let's get into the nuts and bolts. When did you first come to Nantucket? So I came to Nantucket. I was 17 years old. I came to be a fishing mate. Um, my cousin Pete Shepard was running a boat out here. And... I just was looking kind of for adventure. I wanted to do something interesting and that, and I love to fish. And so I was his mate and I did that for a number. How big of a boat? Uh, we ran three boats. Uh, two of them were uh, shallow water boats, about 18 feet, 17, 18 feet. And they were so just, flat fishing. Exactly. So sight fishing out on the flats. And then we ran a bigger boat, um, which was about, uh, what was it? 34 feet, um, which we ran together and that was more offshore fishing uh not huge like long long offshore but you know five miles out 
What's the place, the Nantucket spot that everyone goes out here for tuna? It's the well, the Benita Bar, the is Benita one Bar, place, yeah. but the other place, the Shelf, isn't it? It's like a, well, uh, I forget. There's a name for it. Well, um, where all the goes for the tuna? There's a spot. I should know this. I should. Well, I should know this. Actually, I shouldn't know this at this point because I'm. I'm <laughs> it's been that long. Game, but um, anyway, there's some spot that I know. I I played the. Uh, there was a tuna tournament this summer, and I, I uh, Jonas at Slip 14 oh, had okay. me play it, and all these guys I could hear him talking about their, their spot, the place that oh, they're the going. Canyons? The canyons. The yeah, canyons. Yeah. Thank you. I feel better now. <laughs> <laughs> I know everyone's be like, people listening be like, dude, it's the canyons. Yeah, Just say it. Exactly. Say the fucking word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's the spot, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you We never really, I went out there a couple of times, but it was mostly in short stuff. We ran, you know, th- uh, four-hour trips. So I did that. I was his mate, and I got all my hours during the course of my four years in college, and then I got took my captain's test and became uh, became a captain on the boat, ran the boat. So you have your captain's license. I do, although I've let it elapse. Um, and you know what I realized in the two years I did it, I was just I'm not you know this, the fishermen out here they're fish they're fishermen for a reason. I mean they're very they know where the fish are. They have a certain desire to be out there all the time. And I just found it very stressful. I mean, like you'd wake up every morning and you'd... It's hard work, man. <laughs> yeah, it's hard work. I mean, I have a tremendous amount of respect for those guys, the people that do it, like people like Tom Molesco that have been going out for years and years and years. Yeah, it's just a lot of stress when you, you know, you wake up, you live by the weather. You know, if the wind's blowing in town, you know, today's going to be a really long day. Or if it's foggy in town, you know, it's going to be brutal out there. And I've had I had some pretty harrowing experiences at the end of my second year. Yeah, what? Well, let's hear. Um, what was the, what was the, I mean, what was the most harrowing? Well, the most harrowing was uh, I was I was um, taking out a, a young boy and his uncle and his mother, and I picked him up at the dock, and it was completely fogged in around Madikit. We were in the boats out of Madikit, and I couldn't see anything, but I could hear the breakers out by the Benito Bar and the opening and everything. And so I knew it was probably pretty big, and based upon the weather and everything, I knew it was probably pretty big. So I called out the other captains out there and was just wondering what to get the, a report, yeah, right? what the opening was like. And you know, there's a lot of. It's very rare that a captain will say to you, "No, no, you can't go out there. It's too big." You know, especially the person who I won't mention, who I ended up talking to on the on the radio, really kind of downplayed it. And um, and you got out there. And so I went out and was kind of going through the fog, couldn't see. And the thing with this particular area, it's essentially the space between Smith Point and Tuckernock Island. I know exactly where it is. Yeah, exactly. And and that current rips through yeah. there, right? And there's a, there's a series of sandbars there, um, which essentially stand waves up. You get all this current and the whole ocean dumping through this small space, and then they're getting lifted up. So it's like putting your thumb over a gardening hose. Jesus. So the other, you got a family on the, yeah, so I got a young family and, um, you know, the thing about the opening is if you commit to going, you have to go through because if you try to turn around in the breakers, you can get rolled and flipped. So once I was committed, I was knew I was there. And, and when I started to be able to see what was going on, the, you know, the waves were 15 feet and breaking. Jesus. And so, and how big was your boat? It was like, you know, 34, um, so we were climbing a lot of these waves and they were, they were stacked up upon one another and to the point where I was rushing them and, you know, every next wave would just be about to break. And, um, the last one before I was able to get out of the breaker zone was pretty much 
pretty much broke on top of us. Uh, we shot out through the top. I mean, I remember looking up and basically seeing, seeing the sun through the top of the wave. And uh, I just told everyone to hold on, and we went through. And, um, and when, then when we got out, you know, the waves are just pretty much big, giant swells. And so you made it out. So we made it out. There's no incident. I mean, I was on, as a mate. But you were scared shitless. I was scared shitless because I just realized, I couldn't show it, of course, but I just realized that this was serious and the lives were in my hands. And, you know, I'd been hit by rogue waves uh, when I was the mate, and we'd had, you know, some kind of situations that were, you know, shitty. Yeah. Um, that one where I was just, it was my responsibility I just thought, you yeah, know, like, man, that's pretty intense. This isn't what it what it is for me, and uh, and the thing is that those guys that do the the charters and run the boats out here, I mean, they deal with that on a weekly basis. So it's nothing like I'm. I'm <laughs> yeah. not, there was no heroic no, situation. You made a choice. It just, it's not I was, for me. I didn't have the balls for it. I mean, those guys. That's why I have a lot of respect for them because they have a certain amount of composition within them and a certain amount of confidence and a sixth sense for the ocean to be out there to do it safely and of course there's accidents which we've seen in recent years but i just thought you know i'm in it for the adventure and so, uh, so how old were you when you had when you were taking those people out were you 17 or i was 18? 18 i was the youngest captain on nantucket at the time so at that point i was probably 19 because it was the second year i'd been a captain and um is there any like do you think that the guy that gave you that bullshit report do you think he was doing that on purpose that they want to like teach the young guy is no, there is there any of that so. no. I, I mean there is there is to a certain extent but i don't think that that was the situation i just think for him and his level of um experience it wasn't a big deal for him um whereas for me having not done that for x amount of years it was, you know, that was earning my stripes. So what are you supposed to do when you're in that situation, the waves are breaking, you keep, keep your speed up, right? Yeah, well, you have to keep, you heave to, which is the technical term of just putting the bow through the waves. And you essentially are just trying to time yourself so that as the wave approaches, you're rushing it and then getting... so Getting in between. Getting, getting in between. And in this particular situation, what I was trying to do was... Um, rush the wave that was coming to me but then also when when I got over the wave I was kind of pulling to my port and trying to run down the barrel of the next wave to try to get out of the breaker zone so I would run down as far as I could before the next wave would be cresting and as that wave would start to build and crest I would then turn it hard starboard and rush the wave and you know go are you going back and, and forth on the throttle too for yeah, speed like yeah, I'm jockeying it through and um, Jesus, it sounds gnarly just hearing it. Oh, and then you add the fog and like, again, people on the boat. Conditions then, is crazy out here. They can change in a second. Totally. Right? And, the, and the thing, the, the worst part of it all is that your engine could go and then you're really done. You know, and what do you do? What are you supposed to do if your engine goes? Well, in you could, you're supposed to throw an anchor off your bow and um, pray, uh, pray. <laughs> I mean, you, you just you just hope that you can get kind of put it in a position where you're not a floating duck. You can also work a smaller, we had a small little engine that probably would be a nightmare wow. to try to navigate. That's a pretty it. heavy scenario to be in an 18. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that I look back at that now and just think, damn, I mean, that was, that was a lot. And I was young and, uh, and grateful for it, but I was glad that I made the decision to. So that was, a, that was a summer? Yeah. And then you go to school? Uh, I was, well, I was out of, no, I was still in school. So yeah, I did that. Oh, I did that through school. So if the timing lines up, I, when I graduated college, um, that was my last summer of doing it. So I don't know the dates are always screwed up for me, but 
when I graduated college, I finished then. And did you move out here when you graduated or? Yes, I did. Yeah. I moved out here. And then, um, that, um, that's that fall I traveled and that was kind of when I started taking writing seriously. Okay. So what did the, when did the N magazine, I mean, most people know you, uh, through N magazine. Yeah. Um, Magazine was a real, it was a crazy fluke thing. I, um, so I moved to Jacksonville, Wyoming, and I'd kind of sworn off Nantucket. I was just coming off the fishing, and I just was just tired of being here. And uh, and again, my existence on Nantucket was very specific. I was living on the water essentially. I was working eight hours a day, and then I was working, I was working eight hours a day on the water, and then I was working at night at American Seasons as a bartender. Oh man! So it was a lot. <laughs> I was like going, 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 and I you know I really wanted to experience what it was like to be in the mountains. So I moved to Jackson Hole, and it was in Jackson Hole that I started taking writing seriously, and I was there. I started an online magazine with a group of friends. What was the online magazine? It's called The Mountain Pulse. So this, so doing that, it was an outdoorsy yeah, kind of it was, thing? Yeah, cool, um, it was a cool project, actually. I met this guy working at a restaurant there, and he was using Google Earth to illustrate avalanche slide paths in the backcountry. And so he was trying to create this platform for people to That's educate pretty cool. themselves. Yeah, it was a really cool resource. Is it still around? Uh, the website's still up, but the guys have since dispersed. But they were actually working with the um, Teton Avalanche Center and helping these you know weathered professionals take all their data and apply it to Google Earth. So I was really, I had nothing to do with creating that. I was involved with creating content for this website that would be around it. And what it did for me was... You were a copywriter. Yeah, I was writing. Well, I was I was writing the copy for obviously technical copy, but I was also writing stories and interviewing professional skiers. And it was actually around that time that this book idea was brewing. And what I was trying to do was gain the local credibility by meeting all these people and hopefully writing honest and true stories about them. That when I went to approach the book, I'd be able to um, have the local cred. Um, but as far as in magazines concerned, it was a crazy fluke. I came out here for vacation in June and I had uh, dinner with Soupy and um, Yeva and we were at American Seasons and and the owner of American Seasons, Orla Lascolo, I worked for, said, you should go by in magazine and pitch him a story. And in my mind, I said, I honestly don't want to write for in magazine. Like this is I want to be outside magazine. I want to be you like the outdoorsy stuff, be, right? You know, men's was- journal. Like I wanted to write those type of stories, and I didn't think I'd be able to be fulfilled by writing for a magazine. But I remember the moment I was actually taking a shower, about to get on the ferry, and it's just crazy how life kind of, you know, these decisions really change everything. Change everything. And in my mind, I thought I don't want to. I don't want to go and cold pitch someone a story at N Magazine. But in the shower, I just said, hey, okay. I got an idea for your magazine. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. That's like, yeah. it's almost such a, it's a cliche. Oh, yeah, totally. If you're, you know, it's like telling a band, I got an idea of a song you should cover. Exactly. It's Exactly. T- exactly. <laughs> uh, so I decided. Um, it's like being a used car salesman. Exactly. I just didn't want to, <laughs> I felt awkward. I'm, I'm not the type of person to do that anyway. And, but yet I thought, okay, well, I'll just go try. And so I went in and it was this, the office, they were having a meeting. It was really awkward, and I just kind of stood there awkwardly in the foyer. And I've, I'm already awkward at this point in the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they're in the middle of a meeting. You yeah. walk in like, I have this idea, yeah, guys. Just, uh, you know, kind of knocked on the door. I hope this idea was – what was the idea? Well, the idea actually worked out really well. The editor ended up came, came out and talked to me, Nathan Coe, and um, I pitched him a story about – it was going to be called The Last of the Old Salts. 
<clears throat> and it was a story about a lobsterman on Nantucket. Who? Um, Who? Chuck Butler. And he was... Uh, Chuck Butler, I hope you're listening. Chuck Butler, great, great fisherman. Um, and he was a uh, captain on, a, on this, this boat that a friend of mine was a mate, mate, mate on. And so I kind of knew his story. And um, so anyway, after some time, the editor came back and said, well, let's do it. And it was actually incredibly exhilarating to. So you're in the shower and you're like, I'm just going to go do it because see, those are the moments that I think are really interesting about those uh, inspirations where you're like, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to walk into this office. They don't know me. I'm just some dude with blonde hair that looks like he might be outdoorsy. (laughs) (laughs) And just walk in there and be like, here's the idea. So, and they're in a meeting. Like I, I just can relate to that because I understand those, that, going into, uh, as an actor, going into auditions, I remember going, meeting uh, The Departed, the woman that cast The Departed, her name is something Huffman, and my manager got me an audition in there, and it's the same kind of feeling, you're waiting outside, and you're like, you know they're there, and you walk in, you're like, what are they going to think, you know, you just don't know, but you're putting yourself out there, and so I can relate to that, and so what'd they say? They were like, that's a great idea. Well, it was, it was a long courtship, really. I kind of had to hound them. And that's, I learned a lot of these basic fundamental lessons that I continue to apply in my career. For the first lesson, which was just to say yes to the opportunity to go in there and present something. You know, I, I struggle myself personally with saying yes more. You know, I think I'm so more inclined to just say, ah, you know, that's, that's uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. Is that like your dad? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you have to say yes. So I said yes to the thought of going to pitch them a story. And then the second thing was I pitched them a story but didn't hear anything for weeks. So I hounded and hounded and hounded and hounded, which is the other thing is you just got to be dogged. And, um, and then they said yes, and the story came out great. Uh, they laid it out really nicely. It was my, And my, you wrote the copy? I wrote the copy. And actually my, my cousin... Um, Josh Simpson, who is a photographer from Brooklyn. I know you. I've met yeah. your cousin. Yeah, he came out here and actually did the photography, did this beautiful portrait of him, uh, and they just came out really nice. So I'm curious now on on End Magazine's end, did it just so happen that you walked in there at the right time where they were looking for a piece like you pitched? Is it is on their end? I mean, I think that it. It like in a way, yes. I mean, in a way, I think that we were the magazine. You had no relationship with anyone there. No. You literally walked in. It was a total, yeah, random thing. That's cool. Hey. Oh, it worked out great. I mean, and then from that point, um, they ended up coming back to me and asking, or actually I kind of reached out to them and said, I'll do whatever you want. You know, like I'll write anything you want. And the next issue I wrote, I think, five pieces from Jackson Hole. I'm writing about all these things, interviewing people over the phone and essentially doing them for free because all I wanted to do was get in a magazine. You know, it was the thrill of seeing your to name in pu- print was amazing. And yeah. I still get tickled by it. Yeah. I mean, it's a, that's the thing that makes this job so much fun is that there is this real gratifying thing about seeing what you wrote in print. And, um, well, it's tangible. It's, uh, you know, writing is a very, uh, I'm, I love it. I'm I'm an, an aspiring writer, and I'm embarrassed. That's why I was excited to have you on because I just I appreciate the uh, the art form, man. It's just it's something that takes time, it takes patience, but there's something very gratifying to put something together and then see your words in a magazine. You know, it's like watching you know uh, or writing a song and hearing it recorded. Oh yeah, totally. So you, you you do get that sort of uh, instant gratification of uh, putting words together and sentences that flow and 
and uh, that that process, right? Totally. It's just uh, it's yeah, it's very uh, it's rewarding. Yeah, fulfilling. It just has a, and I think the thing about when did you realize that for you was it this was the in magazine or was it in college? The rewarding feeling of it just realizing that ah, oh, this is really what I was meant to do. Well, I think that Mike, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I mean, I was when I was even a little kid. I remember my dad came home from work one day. He he rides his bike to work, and he came back, and he actually just found a keyboard. Uh, you know, like one back when they had the, the you know the keyboards connected to the computer, and he just brought back the keyboard. And I remember sitting in my my bedroom just like tapping away fake stories in my imagination. I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't think it was possible. I always thought it was like being in the NBA, you know, only the greatest people actually get published. And um, it just came to the the point where I decided to take a shot, you know, and I decided that I'm going to just see, I'd rather take a shot and fail than not do it at all. Right. And so I still feel like I'm taking shots. I mean, I don't think, I think in any art form, it's, you're always battling doubt. You're always battling self-doubt and, um, and with each kind of published piece, you do feel a little more confident. But when you start something afresh, you're like, "All right, am I gonna like what am I? What's this gonna happen? How's it? You know, how's it gonna come together?" Um, but as far as uh, that gratifying feeling, I mean, I remember being absolutely exhilarating. Seeing your name, yeah, seeing my name, but also just you getting the assignment. I thought, "Wow, so I'm, like I'm finally getting um, a real assignment." You know, up to that point, I was just going to the library, pitching magazines, and never hearing anything back. So it was a. It was a. What very, magazines would you pitch outside? Yeah, I was pitching all the ones I still want to be. And would you look in the? Would you? How would you find the? You'd go in the magazine and look at like the yeah, editor's totally, name. And, yeah, and and that's and I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I think this industry is about being you know uh, dogged and just crafty in how you reach out to people and um, and it's about relationships. You know, I'm interested to know about uh, writers now. There's so much content out there, and there's such a demand, but there's also such a, a vast just pool of stuff out there with blogs, and everyone's got a blog, everyone's got a podcast. You know, everyone's got. There's so much content out there. You think it's harder for writers now to break through? I, I think it's just different. I mean, I think I was always really concerned about the fact that you know there is so many, so much competition out there. Um, but I started as a, you know, my first work was through a blog, you know? So I think that if anything, it just creates these forums for you to practice and get an audience. And I think there's a lot of people that, you know, build an audience and then, you know, essentially can rise to the ranks. I will say that I, my, my concern with social media and the way audiences are built is that it doesn't necessarily mean the content's good, you know? And sometimes... I read things and I'm like, ah, oh, God, this kills me that it's not really well put together. The craft itself isn't really... You mean protected. sentence structure or like, oh, this writer, like... Yeah, just like, yeah, I mean, it's just, I guess, fundamentals of writing. And then also just, you know, I think that we've... What are your fundamentals? Did you read did that book, The um, Strunk? What's it called? I have that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, White and Strauss. White and yeah, Strauss, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a great book. It is a great book. Yeah. My father, in order to get our... Um, our permit when we made all our that was uh one of the books we had to read in our family oh it's great that's a cool tradition yeah that's, yeah it's a it's a cool book a nice little guy yeah uh, bookshelf another I should, good one out there if you're interested is um it's written it's written by tracy kidder it's called good prose and it's all about nonfiction writing and uh yeah i found that to be another great resource yeah i just uh writing is so cathartic it's so 
I just, it, it's, I can find a million things that I could do when I sit in my computer. I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll find myself just f- like turning the glass that, that the little, the picture frame that's up in the corner. I'm like, oh, that should be a little to the left. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, you know what? I didn't, I still the coffee. I still got to empty the coffee. There's a million things you totally. can do, man. Yeah. It's so, that's why I just, I'm, I'm enamored with writers because I just, I want to be a writer so bad. It's so hard and uh, it's such a, and I have horrible, horrible grammar. I'm a grammar train wreck. <laughs> and, you know, to express an idea, a lot of times punctuation is very, very important. But I think it's also about getting the idea out there is more important. You know, and the grammar, anyone can come in and help you with your grammar. I mean, when I took the job at the magazine, my first job was as a copy editor and I didn't know anything about the rules of grammar. All the grammar I use is through habit and through being edited by other people, by professors and stuff. And I thought, geez, I mean, I'm going to have to know the rules of grammar and explain them to people. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't break down a sentence and tell you the, the different parts of it. But I just thought, okay, I'll take my shot. As far as just what you were saying about I really want to be a writer, I mean, I remember saying that um, to Soupy, and I always tell the story, and I'll tell the story to anyone that will listen you know, that's what I was saying to myself as I was working in restaurants. And I was I was having a great fun time. You know, it wasn't like I was unhappy, but I was professionally wanting to become a writer. And I was saying that to Subi. I was like, you know, man, I really know I can do this. I can really, um, I know I can be a writer. And he said, well, if you're not doing it, you're not doing it. And from that day forward, I, you know, that at the, at the moment it struck me as, though this is absolute truth. I mean, I'm not sitting down and I'm not just treating it as a job. And from that day, it was when I started, you know, establishing a schedule and treating it as a job. And you would write every day? Write every day. I mean, I would at least write, sit down and try to write. Because, I mean, I don't think... Hand a pen to paper or computer? I do both. It depends on if, if I'm maxed out and totally being distracted by the computer, I'll resort to writing um, hand, which I think is a really good thing. Because you just kind of move through it as opposed to writing a sentence, erasing a sentence, writing a sentence, erasing a sentence. When you write with hand, you just kind of, you see it better. You can kind of map it out. And I actually have a lot of the thing, pieces I've written by hand. I still I keep them all. Um, and so you kind of look back and you see what your, your thought process was and how you piece it together. And um, Yeah, it's, it's so cool. Everyone's got a different process. Totally. I mean, I'm fascinated with other writers' process because it's, it's I think, a reflection on who you are and... So when I, I have a story that I want to share, and this is going to be, I, I was an aspire, I wanted to be a writer. And when I got into New York City, I was doing comedy, but I knew my parents like, you know, you got to have to, yeah, you need an occupation. You can't be a comedian. You can't, you, that's just not what you do. You need a real job. So I got an interview. I was like, all right, I'm really into copywriting. I want to be a copywriter. So through a college friend, there's a woman at Gray Advertising. I got, a, I got an informational interview with this woman and her name is Ruta Fox and I've looked her up on Facebook because she was such a bitch to me. So here I was right out of college and I'm, you know, thinking, you know, I'm, oh, I'm going to be a copywriter. This is going to be great. I go into gray advertising, which is right out of Mad Men. You know, it's on Third uh, Avenue and I go up there and I have this interview and, she, you know, she's very, she's very terse with me and she just is like, kind of rude, but like, eh, here's this kid who's interested in advertising, blah, blah, blah. And I ended up sending her a follow-up email. Okay. And the response I got, I saved the letter and it's upstairs. So we're going to pause it and I'm going to let Rob read Ruta Fox's response to me. All right. So 
We're back. I've gotten the email that I printed out. This is probably, what's the date on it, Rob? The date here is, um, let's see, May 9th, 2000, 11 o'clock, 11.34, 29 seconds, Pacific Daylight Time. This is the real McCoy. Yeah, this is, uh, this is the actual email that I printed out because this was my welcome to New York moment. And this is, so this is from Ruta Fox, the head of... Um, Aver- or head of copy. She was the senior copywriter, maybe, okay. For, okay. at Gray Advertising. Okay. So, and Rob's going to read the letter now. Okay. <clears throat> or the well, email. We should say it starts with Doug in capital letters. You really just aren't getting it with five exclamation points after that. <laughs> Doug, you really-, really... You just aren't getting it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Get some of her tone in there. Okay, let me see. I'm not much of an actor, as you know. That's all right, but... <laughs> okay. And I'm also trying to read through a rip in it. This is clearly an emotional letter. Why would you write me another letter that has grammatical mistakes and is not punctuated correctly? It continues to absolutely amaze me. Here are the mistakes that I would would correct if this was a real piece of copy you turned in. How the hell did you get out of college? (laughs) Three three question, question marks. Really, I can't believe after all the mistakes you made in the past, you would continue to send things that are not exactly perfect Ellipsis, four exclamation points. Oh, well, good luck. You'll need it. Or what does it say? You'll need tons of it. Take care. Well, that's a, that is, that is. So good luck on my Bolton board for the last 15 years. I've had good luck. You'll need tons of it. Ruta Fox. So what is your thought? Like I'm an aspiring writer. I get it. I get a job. I get an opportunity to go meet someone at Gray Advertising. And she sends me this email it's just like, how, read it. How the hell did you get out of college? Yeah. Does it say that? Where yeah. does it say yeah, that? It does, no, it does say that. It says, uh, how the hell did you? Yeah, how the hell did you get out of college? Yeah. Well, what comes to mind immediately is all the Genesis stories of some of the best writers. I mean, uh, Tracy Kidder is a Pulitzer Prize winner, was a writer at The Atlantic, and he was writing this piece, trying to make his way as a young writer. And the head editor at The Atlantic basically wrote on the top of the page to the next editor below him, said, this kid clearly doesn't get it. He shouldn't be a writer, and he should pack it up. And <laughs> wow. the, the editor that ended up working with him censored the comment and worked with him to improve his copy. Now he's arguably one of the best writers in the country. Um, the other thought, other story that comes to mind is Stephen King. I mean, Stephen King was rejected so often that he used to keep a spike on his refrigerator and would just lay all the letters on the spike. And now huh. he's the highest paid author in American history. I mean, wow. so yeah. I rejection mean, is core to this industry. And that's the beautiful thing about it is that the more you rejected, is it's like a sign of progress. At least you're putting yourself out there. I mean, I can't tell you how many people rejected my book and would tell me flat out, this will never be a book. And you just got to stick to your guns and believe that you're going to eventually find the right avenue. But so, this is a beautiful, this is a beautiful <laughs> piece of evidence. I mean, I almost wish it was mine. Oh, man. I mean, that I remember like almost crying. I think I teared up because I had put a lot of energy into like, I was buying all these copy. Uh, uh, hey, Whipple, squeeze this. What's that book? You know that book? It's a copywriting book. No, no, no I don't know. It. Um, 
it's just, I was really into it and I was really gung ho and I was like, ah, oh, I think I'm going to get a job here. And this woman just crushes me. Like that was just such a welcome to New York. Like, fuck you. <laughs> Good luck. You'll need tons. But anyway, I'm glad I got to share it. This is a great, well, I mean, this is a great piece. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so let's get to your book. Uh, here we are in October, 2015. What's the date today? You've, I don't know. You're, you've finished your first book. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and let's go back and t- tell us a little bit uh, overview of the book and how you got inspired to write it. Yeah, so I mean, I like and I said, for those listening that don't know that you wrote a book, tell us what it's about. Yeah, so um, well, the book is about um, arguably the greatest extreme skier, or I like to say a ski mountaineer um, ever. And this is this guy named Doug Coombs, who for ski fans out there may have seen him in Warren Miller videos in the 90s. He was just this... Falling off a... a, a yeah, he was, <laughs> falling off a chairlift. Yeah, yeah. And he just is... Yeah, exactly. That's uh, Warren Miller's those, cred. Between those cliffs. <laughs> I know. Those, those cliffs. are so sick, though. Oh, I love them, oh, man. They're the so, like, hokey, but, like, awesome. Yeah, exactly, it, dude. That was, that was my childhood, watching those videos, like, over and over in my basement. And so I grew up watching this guy, and kind of he ascending in my mind as my hero in my childhood. So you're a skier as a kid. I grew up, a ski, grew up as a skier. I grew up skiing this little hill called Neshoba Valley, but it's a 240-foot molehill west of Boston. And my mom, probably the best thing my parents ever did for me was my dad gave me a second-haired pair of skis, and I had a pair of my mom's old ski boots, and they dropped me off the what bus. What were the skis? Let's hear them. Were they Rossies? Old K2s. Old K2. Yeah. What, what do you uh, remember? I don't even remember. They were, they were, I mean, they were so rentals. Two-by-fours. Yeah, they were like, they were, they were the bowling shoes, you know? They were, yeah, they yeah, were, yeah. They were like totally. the second hands. Um, but I grew up skiing this small little hill, and and as I said, I moved out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And when I was in Jackson Hole, this is the place where Doug Coombs cut his teeth and really emerged as this phenomenal skier. And it was while I was living in Jackson, hearing about his story, that I learned he actually grew up skiing the same little hill I grew up skiing back in Massachusetts. And we actually grew up only 20 miles away from one another, 20 years apart. And huh. that... That moment, I actually remember it. I was in the restaurant and kind of you'd never this. you'd never heard about him. Never knew when any, you were back in Mass. Never knew anything about that history. I just knew of him as this phenomenal skier that did all these amazing conquests. When I learned that, you know, writers say that a story finds you. You, you know, I was kind of looking for what I was going to write. I tried to write a book about traveling around South America. I didn't finish it, and I was looking for a book, and this story kind of presented itself. And I realized that this is the, what I was supposed to be doing, was writing about this guy. And that began this long quest of trying to first piece together his life, which was a, a real challenge because he did so much in the 48 years that he was alive. Um, but also to get into this inner circle of the extreme skiing. And I use, the, I use extreme skiing only because I think people recognize and understand what I'm talking about, but it's not really extreme skiing. It's, it's ski mountaineering. It's using mountaineering skills to be in the big mountains and ski down so them. You're, yeah, like you're backcountry, yeah, you're climbing back up. skiing, essentially. Yeah, okay. Um, but to get into that inner circle requires a tremendous amount. It's like breaking into the mob in a way. I mean, you need to earn your credibility. And it's just, you, you kind of have to earn your way in. And so it was a long process of just meeting people and trying to be respectful and polite and and gaining their trust. And I think that the person I needed to gain the most trust from and the person that I approached in the beginning was his, was his wife, his widow. And, you know, it was a, it was a lot of conversations before she kind of gave me her Where voice. is she? 
She's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So you had to go out to her one. There's another moment of uh, oh, dude, absolutely of nervousness and putting yourself out there, going up to this widow and saying, "I really want to write a story about your dead husband." Well, Jesus Christ, yeah. that's heavy, man. And actually, it was it was it was even more serendipitous than that because I'd been I've been spending I spent about a year, as I said, working for that online magazine with this idea brewing in my mind and, and realizing that I needed to kind of meet the right people and be really quiet. Because for one, I didn't want anyone else to write this book. I felt like the story of Doug Coombs is eventually going to be a book, and I wanted it. So I wanted to be really quiet about it. In fact, to this day, I'm still not really putting it all out there. Um, but I knew that I had to get her blessing. And I went the I went back to Jackson Hole with the, the distinct purpose of meeting her. She never knew who I was, and introducing myself and telling her what it was about. And where, did, where did you see her? Well, this is the... This is just how I knew it was kind of a very, um, like I was on the right path. Um, there was an old timer in town, this guy named Bill Maloney, who I introduced myself to when I first moved to Jackson Hole. He graduated from my college like 50 years before me, and he helped me get my first job in Jackson Hole at a restaurant. And I knew that he would know her because when I first went to his office, I remember seeing the placard from Doug Coombs's memorial service, and I realized that they must have been friendly. And he was kind of a man about town. So he was going to be the guy in my mind who would introduce me to her. So I went to him and I said, you know, Bill, can we go out for, uh, can we have a meeting? I want to ask you about something. And I uh, said, so let's go out skiing. And so we go out skiing and we're in the gondola and I kind of tell him, I want to write a book about Doug Coombs. You know, and he looks at me with his face as if I just asked to marry his daughter. You know, he's like very, everyone's very productive of Doug Coombs' legacy. But in time, I kind of told him what my intentions were and why I thought I was able to do it. And I won his confidence. And in the course of that day, he said, all right, well, let's go down and buy, I'll get lunch and I'll call Emily, who you have to talk to. Um, so he sets it up. So he's, we're, that's where we're going to go set it up. We go down, we're waiting for lunch, and I'm staring at the sandwich board. He hasn't called her yet. You know, he, has, he hasn't seen her for months. So he doesn't even know what her status is. And um, I'm looking at the sandwich board. And then in the corner of my eye, this woman just walks over to us. And goes directly up to Bill, and he turns to her and is just totally taken aback. It's like, I can't believe you're here right now. I was just about to call you. And so Doug Coombs' wife just walked in at that moment. We hadn't called her. We hadn't wow. anything. And so yeah. there I am standing like completely dumbfounded thinking, okay, I've been waiting to talk to this person for all this time. And now I'm standing right in front of her, and I'm totally speechless. And so I kind of fumbled my way through that conversation, and eventually she said, well, why don't we go skiing? And I went up and went skiing with her. And it was just this surreal moment of, you know, skiing with my hero's wife. And, um, and then it was literally a year of talking to her till she kind of warmed up to the idea of... She, so she wasn't warm to it at first? I think, she, no, I, and she wasn't. I mean, it was just that other people had approached her about writing a book, I was this nobody person. Like, I came out of nowhere, and I don't blame her for being a little bit standoffish. And in time, we developed a friendship, and she turned out to be my biggest supporter and helped me get into these. You know, I traveled all over the world and was able to gain access to people that, you know, you really wouldn't gain access to. Was and he, but like, I mean, I keep thinking of Glenn Plake. He was contemporary of Glenn Plake's. Um, he, did you speak? Did you? I didn't talk to Glenn, although I could have. Um, I spoke to almost everyone else around him. I'll speak with Glenn, but um, 
you know, the, the challenge was that this guy, Doug Coombs, had such a vast network of people that he inspired or skied with. So I had to decide who I was going to talk to. So what was it like, give us, what makes it so groundbreaking? I, I don't like just, what makes his yeah, like what, so how did he become such of a legendary status? Sure, absolutely. Well, he, I mean, he really broke up on the, broke on the scene when he won the first World Extreme Ski Championships out in Valdez, Alaska. Um, this is the first time an extreme skiing contest was, was held. And what was so much of a watershed moment as far as he's concerned is that he not only won the competition, but he beat them outright. I mean, he was head and shoulders above everyone else. For Doug Coombs, winning the contest wasn't really a, wasn't really a feather in his cap. He was this naturally modest person. For him, what it was, was seeing the Chugash Mountains in Alaska and realizing that there was this whole playground that had never been explored. And it set him off on this quest, about a 10-year quest, seven-year quest of opening up all these areas with, you know, Vietnam vet helicopter pilots and just total renegade era of skiing, the wildest period you could ever imagine. I mean, they were living in snow caves. They were skiing at all hours of the night. They were partying like crazy. I mean, it was just an amazing, adventurous time. But for, for what, what his legacy became was that he started guiding there and taking people there and, you know, showing them these places, these normal people, average people, and bringing them to these, you know, 70-degree slopes, six, well, not 70-degree slopes, but 50-degree slopes, skiing perfect powder. And he, his magic was that he could inspire them to a point where they were so confident within themselves that they could do these things. And so that is the legacy that continues to reverberate through all these people. So it's a, but it's a pretty small community when we're talking about the extreme ski community. Yeah, it is right? a very niche. We're not, we're not, it's very niche. Very yeah. niche. Um, but, you know, he was in ski films. Um, and he just, So that's, ski films is where really the, his bigger audience grew, like Warren I mean, I Miller. I guess you could say that. But I mean, his, yeah, he, he did develop a, his fame through that. But as far as he's concerned, he was a guide first and he just would guide other skiers in films. And that's how he ended up on these movies. He was better than the guys in the films, you know? So his, his legacy is in part that he opened up this region, which is now a cottage industry in skiing. I mean, to ski in the Chugash mountains in Alaska to heli ski in Alaska is kind of, I mean, it's still an amazing experience, but it's, it's, it's kind of commonplace in the ski world. I mean, there's people in professional skiers that consider it like skiing in a lift, you know? Hmm. Um, but at the time, it was it was unknown if it could actually be done. I mean, they were using helicopters that weren't equipped for landing on these peaks. And, you know, it was very death-defying to the true definition. Of Literally the being dropped off on like a four-foot little ridge. Yeah, I mean, right? little knife ridges and uh, it's crazy. skiing really avalanche-prone stuff. And so he was developing guiding protocols and, you know, safety protocols making rescues in the Chugash. I mean, a lot of amazing adventures. And yet he was also bringing people out there and sharing these stashes with them. And um, when he finished Alaska, I mean, another thing that was happening concurrently to that is he was, he was in um, Jackson Hole and he was teaching people how to essentially navigate this steep terrain. And he and his wife started a steep skiing camp that was kind of unheard of at the time. I mean, at that point ski mountains were trying to ski resorts are trying to minimize their liability of course and, and now he's taking people out into this gnarliest stuff and teaching them how to survive the people that are hardcore skiers want my brother would love that totally you know he's he's into he, the more extreme you know 
the better. So I get it. I get that uh, instinct that and people wanting the, the freshest, total, sickest powder. Yeah. <laughs> and it's an experience. It's it's just a, you know, in a way you're going back to the roots of skiing. You're going back to hiking, and um, you know you're away from the resorts. You're in the backcountry. So it's a it's a it's a more. I mean, I hazard to use the word soulful, but it's a, it's just a, a unique experience to be in the mountains at that capacity. Um, and you know, I think that when I say he was a pioneer, I mean just he opened up these places, but he did it in a way that continue. Anyone I talk to that knows anything about that era of time, put him at the top as far as skiing ability. I mean, he was just a remarkable athlete. And what was so interesting to me was that he was this remarkable athlete that came from a 240 foot molehill in Massachusetts. You know, and how does that happen? You know, and so that was kind of what put I me can, on this quest. Yeah, you're fascinated by that. Yeah, you I guys grew know. up ski- skiing the same right mountain, and he becomes this world-class extreme skier. Totally, yeah. And so to try to test that theory, I ended up going to all the places he skied and skied a lot of his runs and tried to see and try to learn. So this was your research? This is my research that became part of the book. The book is broken into two parts, although I don't want to give up too much. You know, it's a a third-person story about his life, pretty much a biography. And then there's my story about going to all these places and trying to piece together his life and meeting all these people that were in his sphere skiing some of these runs, and also giving the reader a level of perspective. What is it like to ski something that can kill you? And what's going through your, your head, you know? And it was, I needed to do that to really put a sense of who this guy was. I think as you're ta- talking to me about this, I immediately think of the delicate nature. If you're trying to put someone's legacy together, it's a really intimate thing that you're engaging on. And I, I can only imagine, you know, the in, insecurities that it brings up. Like, am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? Like t- you're talking about someone that's passed away and you're going into these, this sacred circle and then you're going to tell their story. So man, that's fucking ballsy. Dude, you nailed it on the nose. Like that was, that was anxiety. It's intense, man. That's really intense. Well, I'm really happy to report that I've just recently, um, so I shared the book with his wife and his siblings very recently, Another nervous moment. Incredibly <laughs> heavy. Because, I mean, I, you know, just as you said so accurately, I mean, that's what the, you know, of all the you no know, fall zones and all the, you know, the trips and the terror of some of those experiences. I mean, really what was most stressful to me was being respectful to this person's story and also doing it justice and telling it in the right light. Um, but I'm, I'm very, very grateful that most recently they've read the book and are completely enthused by it and really feel like I did a a good job at telling his story. And um, so that for me at this point, you know, whatever happens at this going forward is gravy because I only wanted to write this guy's story and I wanted to do it to their, you know, um, approval. Approval. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wanted, if they could say that this is, that I captured this guy's life accurately, then I knew that I did the right job. You know, I just, yeah. Cause it's hard. I never met him. He are, died. Are, are you, how did he die? He was killed in an accident um, trying to save a young protege of his. Um, he was in the mountains of France, in the French Alps, in this small old town called Le Grave. And he had this young protege, a guy named Chad um, Vanderham. And Vanderham, much like me, kind of grew up idolizing this person. And he ended up going to one of the steep skiing camps in Jackson Hole and was just totally taken by him. He was a college student and a really, really talented skier and saw this life that Doug Coombs was leading 
and seeing the type of terrain he was skiing and said, this is it for me. And he started to follow him around the world. This huh. leads him to uh, Le Grave, France. And at that point, he decides he's going to become a guide like his hero. And he's excelling at that. And he's established himself in Le Grave. He's become more of a mountaineer, less of a hotshot skier as he was as a kid. And he's really maturing. And on this fateful day in, uh, in 2006, uh, they meet at the top of the mountain very kind of serendipitously. And uh, they decide they're going to finish the day off with a run called the Poly Chanel, which is uh, a series of couloirs or chutes that passed over um, a no-fall zone, essentially. And they're skiing down with two other people. And the conditions are perfect. It's a beautiful day. And, you know, they're skiing it somewhat aggressively, but not any more aggressive than would be kind of, you know, it wasn't like overly aggressive. Um, and in this kind of s- symbolic way, on the last section of the couloir, Chad Van Dam, the protege, takes over for, from Doug Coombs, takes the lead and kind of goes down while Doug Coombs stands up top and watches his young protege go down. It's so steep that you can only see for so far until you can't see below. And so he lets him go down and then Doug continues to follow him and when he comes down to this last section he sees that um, Chad Vanderham is gone and he sees that his tracks go over the edge and he yells up for the other two people that were with him to bring down a rope and as he's saying that he's also sidestepping down to the edge of this cliff to get a to try to get a look on him and he essentially loses his purchase and he falls over and he's and he's killed in that accident both of them end up were end, both, both killed. Ended up killed. Yeah. Now the remarkable thing, Jesus. Uh, beyond the fact that you know this is a very, you never want to say that someone died doing what they loved or that, that this is like this right. appropriate thing, but he was dying in a very selfless way. He was trying to save the life of someone else. Um, but the real remarkable thing is that uh, 32 years prior to that, he was skiing in, um, in Waterville Valley in New Hampshire, a young kid, 16 years old. And he um, broke his neck uh, skiing. And it was a pretty serious break. The doctors had to fuse his ver- cervical vertebrae and they put him in a halo brace. They told him that, you know, you shouldn't be skiing at all. In fact, if you fall again, you're not just going to par- be paralyzed, like you're going to be killed. And so at this point, at 16 years old, Doug Coombs has to decide, like, am I going to live this sedentary, safe life or am I going to follow my passion? Of course, he follows his passion, continues to ski, has this remarkable career. And then 32 years later, when he falls off the cliff, he breaks his neck and dies of the exact injury. But it's a kind of a message of like... Holy shit, man. You, that just gave me goosebumps. That's pretty yeah, heavy, it's, man. And I, when I found that out, it was, it was really a mind blower. Wow. Um, but it's a lesson. Like, how do you want to live your life? You know, this guy obviously died before he should have. But the amount of life that he packed in was equivalent of multiple lives and other people's. Well, he's got a legacy and, you know, someone like yourself comes along and, you know, you're doing your part to keep the legacy alive. Totally. And actually on the point of legacy. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. Well, just no, but the, the, I think that the, I do want to keep his legacy alive, but there is a much more important thing that's being done uh, to keep his legacy alive. And in Jackson Hole, his wife started the Doug Coombs Foundation which is dedicated to um, enabling low uh, children from low-income families to be able to ski. So it's giving them all the necessary. That's pretty means cool because skiing's expensive. That's it's a expensive. really and it's like kids that live in the mountains but don't know how to access them or can't access them. 
And it's a beautiful legacy because you think about all the freedom that's inherent to the sport, and you think of all the things that opened up for you know for Doug Coombs, for me, for all these people that do it, lead them into a really unique existence. And so you wonder what these kids are going to be exposed to when they get the chance to do it. And uh, you know, so it's um, it's a real amazing thing. And and I'm hoping the book can draw some attention to the foundation because that's really where. You know, well, that's cool. We'll make sure that the people, uh, the Doug Coombs Foundation, for those of you listening, can check it out. I just actually, well, uh, I Googled it. I just, and it came, first thing it came yeah. up. So that's really cool. Yeah, he's got a great, great legacy. Wow, that's a, that's quite a story, Mr. Kakuza. That's, that's heavy. I, 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 I want to go back, and this is just the, the writer uh, a question, is that first you get the idea for the book. You start doing some research. And I want to know about that. Where was the moment that you first, uh, you know, that first page? Where do you start? How did you, did you start a million different ways or did you already know here's where it's going to start? Yeah, I mean, I think that I probably, I, I've written this book several times. And how many pages it. is it? It's 200, and, it's going to be about 280. 280 um, pages. I probably wrote thousands of pages to, to get to that point. Um, I mean, I think that I, this whole process was with a lot of dead ends. I mean, I probably did it the wrong way many times, you know, was trying to figure it all out. Um, was there a model that you used? Was there another book that you saw that you liked yeah, the format? Yeah, exactly. There were other books that I really enjoyed. Um, I think I had to be, I had to be convinced to do the two narratives to be able to put myself in the book because I, my biggest fear was that a, a contemporary of Doug Coombs to pick up this book and hear me writing about my experience and think, who the hell is this kid? I don't want to hear about his life. <laughs> right. right. He doesn't, he doesn't, he hasn't won the world extreme ski championships. He's no shit. What is he doing writing about himself? I didn't want people to think that I was tacking my story onto this guy's legacy. Yeah. But I realized that writing through the first person offered a uh, avenue to detail Doug's life out of chronology, out of, you know, I could add things that weren't in this other arcing story that I was going through. Um, but as far as the process, I mean, it's, it's tough to say if you look back in the folder that I started four years ago, I mean, there's so much and I got to a point, it was funny, and this is kind of relates to your letter. <laughs> so I got to, um, I got to a point where I thought I knew what I was writing about and I was working on a proposal and, um, I reached out to this author, uh, Robert Kirsten, who wrote a book called Shadow Divers. And I read this book and I was like, this guy writes like I want to write. Like, this is such a cool book. And I reached out to him and told him. How did you reach out to him? Well, I, I was so enamored by his book that I ended up writing a story about one of the characters in the book. And I interviewed him, one of the characters, uh, because his book's about deep wreck diving. And there's a wreck off of Nantucket called the Andrea Doria where yeah. I wrote a story about. And so I got in touch with this diver and he ended up, give me the email. And so I got, got in touch with the guy, I got him on the phone and kind of gave him my two minute drill on what I thought my book was about. And he basically said to me, he's like, you don't know what you're writing about. You don't know, you don't know the arc. You don't know the beginning, middle, end. Like you don't know what you're doing. And you gotta, he said, you have to know everything about this individual. You need to know everything. You need to just research. Cause at that point I was like, I'm ready to write. But he was right. I didn't know shit. I mean, I didn't know hmm. anything. Huh. The really gratifying thing was that Robert Kirsten came to the, uh, the Nantucket Book Festival this past summer, and I was able to go to him and say, thank you for that advice because now the book is done and you're right. You need to learn everything. You need to go every, through every avenue and allow the story to manifest itself. And so 
you know, there and was, you did. Did you go to? You went to the spot. I, I, I was just thinking of you. You went and skied the place where he died. So you know, you fly it all the way to Paris. And I think I remember on Facebook. You, yeah, well, I, I didn't actually ski the run that he died on, only because, well, for two reasons. One, you know, I'm not a professional skier. I'm not about to ski something that has that level of consequence. Quite frankly, the other reason is even if I did have the balls to do it, there was no one that was willing to guide me on it. Um, do so, people tend to stay away from that spot yeah, now? After the accident, very, very few people ski it and very, very few people guide it. Um, at the time, it was more of a regular run, but now it's not so much so. But I lived in the village that he lived in for two months. And it was, you know, I got to really get a sense of what it was like and why it was so appealing for him. I mean, after kind of tracking his story for so long and really gaining a understanding of what compelled him and what was interesting to him and why he loved love places. I was like, this is a perfect spot for him. For me, as a, as a, <laughs> as a, as a difference, I, it was a terrifying place. I yeah. was living in the mountains. I was living in a teeny little agricultural village, a little farming village. No one spoke English. I was by myself and I was living on the mountain versus living in the valley. So I was living up a mountain where I had to skin up every day and my window looked out into you know, the, the mountain where, where every day I'd wake up and hopefully the lifts weren't running. I was just so terrified of the place. Um, but it was gaining through that experience that I, um, I was able to kind of piece together a story. As far as the actual nuts and bolts of writing the book. What was your process like writing the book? Would you wake up every day and be like, all right, here, and have like bullet points. Here's what I'm going to do today. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that I, well, the nuts and bolts of writing it, I first needed to get the proposal written, which was writing a mini version of the book which is a big pain in the ass because you think, I, well, I just want to write the book. I don't want to spend all this time. So I spent six months writing a 60-page version of the book. No shit. But uh -huh. it turned out to be a really good exercise because now I've got a framework of what I'm actually going to write. You know, so I had this document that I was using to try to get publishers to pick up the book. And I also said, well, all I really have to do is unpack all these mini chapters and detail them. So that served as my framework. And I just, just kind of, like I said, I started unpacking the details. I did a tremendous amount of research. I mean, I interviewed hundreds of people, which was, you know, that was nerve wracking when you're calling up these like salty or even when you're hanging out with them and you're just trying to not ask stupid questions, you know? And for the first two years, it was like looking for the light switch in the dark basement because <sighs> you don't know what this guy's really done. He's achieved so much that you don't know if your question's like ridiculous or if... You know, you just and you don't have the context for the relationship that oh. they had, other than that, that they skied together. Right. So, and a lot of these guys are short on words. You know, it's tough to get them to, you know, tell you about some of the experiences. And so, it just took. You know, you find one piece and you try to use that to get you to the next spot. And uh, you know what it took? It took fucking balls. <laughs> you have a lot of. That's a. It's a crazy. That's a heavy thing to do to take on, man. That's a. Uh, I, you know, now that I'm hearing the story about what you actually went through, it's, it's a lot. That's a, well, I think that, I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that because I did feel like it did take some balls, but I think that anyone that undertakes a book, when I walk into a library now or walk into a bookstore, I'm like, my God, look at all these lives here. Look at all these people that have devoted their time to some pursuit, something that they found interesting. They had to learn every little nuance of it. And it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's our only form of immortality. It's true, yeah. I, mean, I heard that once. Yeah. They're like authors. It's your, it's our, it's a human's only chance at immortality. Totally, uh, but I do think you get more. The more you do it, I mean, I think for my next book, whatever it may be, um, you do 
find a system. I essentially wrote this whole book in nine months. Um, I spent, you know, three years getting all the evidence together, you know, writing chapters. Like, I don't know how many chapters and how many pages I, that have ended up on the, you know, the, the cutting room floor. I mean, right before, the month before I gave the book to my publisher, I was feeling kind of, ups- not upset, but I was just feeling like I just wanted to get the book away from me. I wasn't excited about it. It wasn't, didn't have any energy to it. And I was on the beach um, walking, and I bumped into Charlie Graber. Do you know Charlie? I don't. Charlie Graber wrote a book called The Good Nurse, and uh, it became an overnight bestseller. And he spends part of his time in Brooklyn, part of his time here. Actually, he would be awesome to come on. All right, Charlie. There, there it is, Charlie. You're coming on Inside the Whale. He would be so great to talk to. All right. Him. He's the Done. Man. He's oh. a good guy? He's, he is. Charlie, if you're listening, we're going to get you here and sit down. He's the right. He, like, when I first met him, I thought this is the guy I wanted to be when I became a writer because he's such a badass. He really is. <laughs> That's a quite badass. a plug, Charlie. He's a badass. That's cool. So he, and he any summers out here? Or? So yeah, he's been coming out for a long time. He spends his falls here. I mean, he splits his time. He writes in an attic in town, and then he also works uh, in Brooklyn. He writes in Brooklyn, but he wrote this overnight bestseller called The Good Nurse. And is there any? Is there such thing as an overnight bestseller? It was just like it was an instant success. All right, well, well Charlie, that's your story. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you. And yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. a really cool story too. I'll let him tell it, but it's it's fascinating. I'd like to get Ellen Hildebrand too. I see her. I don't know her. I just see her walking. She'd be around. good too. Yeah, she'd be good. A lot of authors out here. Totally. But, but anyway, I, I bumped on. into Charlie. We're on the beach, and he's he kind of like walks out of the shadows every now, every now and again when I need like a piece of advice. He was another person that doubted that the book would kind of come into being. He he advised that I this is way back, but he advised that I write a long form piece in an outside magazine. Hopefully that would turn into a book. Anyway, we're talking about process. He's having a little bit of a hard time getting his wheels turning because like because the book was so successful, I think it's you know, it's it's a challenge to try to write the next one. And he was working on different different projects and anyway, I was telling him about my book and he said, not directly about mine, but about just the process. He said what I needed to learn was, you know, when we write nonfiction, we're we really feel like we need to stick to chronology in a way because it makes it easier for us. You know, when you're writing, you know chronology, you can just stick with it. But really for a reader, especially for a reader who doesn't know who you're writing about, you need to bring them right in on the action. Like you need to bring them 160 pages down the line where you're trying to lead them. You need to bring them there immediately. And at that moment, I was like, he's absolutely right. So from that day, I just totally reconstructed my book, basically rewrote it and have it so that the action's like right up front grabs you immediately and then essentially creates questions for you for a reader like they have to ask questions that you then answer so you create this not necessarily cliffhanger but you just try to pull them through the book as opposed to having to lead them well it's very similar to screenwriting it's the same way you know you want to you want the, the audience to go on this journey and how do you keep them engaged right totally you know and and it's different it's one thing if you're writing uh fiction but it's a different ball of wax if you're writing nonfiction, right because this is someone's legacy yeah, man that's exactly yeah but so so you're you're you finished it what's the title it's called tracking the wild kumba is that his nickname yeah and uh it's kind of based off of a there's a there's a whole old field journal called hunting the wild asparagus and i was trying to come up with this, this book title and i was interviewing a childhood friend of his and he said to me you know if i and i was working with this idea of tracking coombs tracking something you know because I thought, that's what I'm doing. I'm tracking this guy's story. And um, so I was talking to an uh, old friend of his. He said, oh, I thought if there's ever a book written about Doug, it would be Hunting the Wild Kumba. And I was like, oh, that's pretty good. 
and I'll do tracking the Wallacoomba. <laughs> and uh, we'll see. I mean, the, the editor still has the power to change, or the publisher still has the power to change that, but thus this is the, the title to the, for, the, for the moment. You know, I, I mean, I know it's it's not out yet, but I immediately think of the uh, the success of just having someone you got a you got an advance, and yep. uh, that's a big deal. As, a, as someone's like putting their money behind you and a publisher saying, you know, as for an aspiring writer, it's like you know, not, this is you. I'm a writer now. This is my job. Totally, it's very cool. So congratulations thank on you. that. No, you thank know? you. And I, and I, but I, I, yeah, I mean, I. I I still have to, I mean, I still wake up with the same amount of doubt that I had when I was waking up and going to the library, you know, like this is done and, you know, it is the journey, you know, I I was the whole time I thought when I'm writing the book, like, oh, I can't wait for it to be done. It's going to be so great. But really, I want to, you know, you love the process. I mean, I miss hanging out with Doug Coombs every morning, you know, like I'd wake up and be in Alaska flying through a hell, you know, flying in a helicopter this whole thing, this whole imagination just going on in my head of like this story. And I gained this friendship with him. And that's actually when I was writing the death sequence was extremely tough for me, which I was kind of surprised by was that it was like, you know, you're killing a friend, you know, and you actually felt that way. I totally. And I actually, and I actually pushed it off for such a long time. I had that last. So you're like today I got to write it. I'm like, I can't do it. I would just, I, I wouldn't even get that far. I would just, create distractions for myself say, okay, I'm going to go back to chapter five and polish that up because I know I got to do that eventually. Um, and I just felt like I needed to be in the right headspace where I could tell the story with the amount of passion that I needed to do it. And, um, you know, cause I think every chapter, every time you write or whatever, was, was that, would you say that's your low was your lowest point right in the book? Was that when you felt like you couldn't go, was there a point yeah, where you there was were, a lot of low points? What was your lowest? My lowest point was just waking up with 60 pages written and realizing that I might not be able to do this and that I might not be able to figure it out. And I'd already given my word to his wife and said that I was going to do it. And in my head, I knew I was going to, I knew I was going to give my best shot, but I honestly didn't know if I was going to be able to finish it. And I thought this is going to be the biggest failure in my life that I'm not going to actually be true to my word. And you'd have to go back to his wife and say, say I'm sorry, I, I can't. I tried, but this is as far as I can take it. Damn. And so that was, <laughs> I mean, and that happened, and that was a lot. I mean, Dude, was, you're a ballsy fucking guy, man. That's I. That's crazy. I, I courage is the only thing I could say. You got a lot of courage, man. That's a. Well, I think you probably believed in the story so much, and you know that's probably what pushed it, right? You yeah, getting I mean, his story out. Totally, and I think that um, I was also. I don't want to get too cosmic here, but there was a lot of moments where, like, I would need something and it would just appear, um, and that created a lot of energy for me and a lot of encouragement. I remember one time I was trying to figure out how he actually broke his neck. And I was trying to get in touch with these people that were there, his young his childhood friends, which was like they live in Hawaii. Like they don't know. They haven't thought about Doug Coombs, or at least I thought, for a period of time. And so I finally get this guy on the phone. He's like about to get on a plane. And I said to him, you know, I, 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 I want to know all about your history with him, but I specifically want to know about this day when he broke his neck as a child. And he said, well, I'll happy to tell you about it, but, you know, I actually wrote about it at length in this document after his death that I gave to his family. I said, oh, amazing. And I actually had seen the document when I visited his sister. And um, I hang up the phone from him, and I'm about to go for a bike ride. I'm in Boston at the time. And I walk out in my front stoop, and uh, there's a package on the door, uh, doorstep. And I open up, and it's that document. And his sister just happened to think that I might need it and sent it to me that day. And it's like right there. So it was just a lot of these moments of things that happened that when I was feeling really low, 
they would kind of give me some encouragement to feel like it was, you know, something was, I was on the right path. And, uh, and also, I just kind of had to remind myself that I was being honest with what I was doing. I had no agenda here. You know, I really just wanted to honestly tell the story. And, um, you know, we all know the economy of a book. So after this, hearing that story, I'm immediately thinking, was it hard to transition? You're writing this kind of heavy book and then to go do N Magazine or was it was N Magazine a relief? Because I, it was so different. Yeah, no, it was a relief. It was very, I, I was, I, for one, I was extremely fortunate to have a job that allowed me to, you, you know, be able to hone my craft all the time. Um, but it was a different part of my brain. I mean, I'm lucky that I work with fun people at the magazine where we get to work on photo shoots. And, you know, that's a different process. For me, I do write a lot for the magazine, but I'm thinking about it more as, you know, like how the whole thing's going to come together. Um, and the book was really a life raft for me because, you know, that is my creative outlet. I can be completely myself when I write that. For the magazine, there's all types of confines that are inherent to any magazine. You know, you get you get your specific audience. You have stories that are, you know, you need for particular issues. And... Um, and, you know, advertising and all the whole thing. So you Yeah, it's to, the business. It's a business, yeah. It's totally yeah. business. Whereas this was, like, totally soulful. And, you know, I again, I was doing it because I really wanted to write this story. And um, and throughout it all, I would always get back to his wife and say, I just want you to know how grateful I am that you let me do this. Because, of course. Because just, just the adventures. I mean, I got to heli-ski in Alaska. I was living in France. I mean, um, skiing with some really epic people in Jackson Hole. And you feel like you know him. Totally. I mean, I, it's funny because I talk to people now. Well, you'll meet him again at some point. You yeah, know, he's yeah, out there. <laughs> totally. I mean, the, yeah. The, and the, the, he's out there in a lot of the people that he touched in his life because when I talk to these people and interview them, you know, when they conjure up the memories of the time they spent with him, I mean, they went to a different place and they kind of radiated the energy that he had in his life. And that was his magic, was that Doug Coons possessed more energy than most people. And he had a way of kind of imparting it in other people and uh you know as i wrote in the conclusion of the book you know as i was reflecting on his death and i thought you know as much as he, the fact is he is dead but it doesn't seem dead you know it's like, cool we should we should all be so lucky yeah totally I mean, rob you and i if we've you know if we could be so lucky that our our legacy is that it, it exists like that well it's, but, it's just yeah i mean it's but it's doing what you love and trying to be yeah um well, it's also about sharing time with other people. And I think that's something I struggle with is that as a writer, I'm totally perfectly designed for this kind of solitary existence. But really, what is it all about? It's about being with other people. It's about sharing time and space with other people and creating that energy. Totally. You know, and I, and I struggle sometimes to, to, to realize that. And, um, and following this guy's story really illustrated it. And hopefully I can... I'm part of more and more of my but life. But you get you know? more of that in the summer, going to all those cocktail parties and well, stuff. You I get, think that's you get... actually the most alienating time for me is the cocktail parties. And, really? Well, just because I'm not naturally inclined. I, you wouldn't find me there normally. You know, yeah. like I'm, I'm more of the go to the barbecue and hang out with friends like that. You know, right? I think the cocktail party is um, it's, it's part an of the Nantuck- job. It's part of the job. It's an Nantucket scene, and. Um, you know, I I will say that you meet some remarkably interesting people, and they are a source of great stories. But I am more social. Dude, you awkward. sat down with Ron Howard. 
That was cool. Yeah, he was the man. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know, I sat next to him once. I don't know him. He's I just, guy, I, yeah. he seemed, dude, he seemed the so down to earth. We sat next to each other on Metro. He has a, he lives in Connecticut, I, I yeah, assume. Yeah. yeah, he does. Yeah. Sat next to him. He seemed like the most normal person. Totally. Just down to earth. Like, I, I think that there's this persona of him, you know, it, anyway, he just seemed really cool yeah, and normal. Was didn't seem like a Hollywood celebrity. Totally. He was just a guy that's really into what he's doing. And that's, and that's what it comes down to. Those <laughs> are the fascinating people, is the people that are just so driven and passionate about, you know, yeah. the, things that, the things that they're put on this earth to do, you know? And, um, yeah, Ron's a, Ron, Ron was a cool guy, and he was, I was lucky to get that interview with him. But So, anyway, the book is done. book is done. Yeah, I shouldn't even say so. Anyway, that's such a crappy way to like. No, <laughs> non sequitur. No. I just no. that the I'm still processing a lot of that story. I mean, I, I mean the book I actually. I am. I have one little thing I still have to do. Next month, I'm going to Jackson Hole, and I'm actually shadowing one of the kids in the camp, and that's going to be the epilogue of the book. Is this story of a youngster um, who has no relation to Doug Coombs, and yet is living this life because of his because of the life Doug lived. So I'm going to show, f- shadow him, and in 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 that way, I'm trying to show full circle about how, you know, the book starts with you know Doug Coombs is a young kid, and now you get this other young kid, um, and so hopefully that will tie it together. So that's the last thing, and then there's obviously more editing and marketing. And what's the when do you think it'll be till it's in people's hands? Uh, it'll be exactly this time next year. So about another so year. Yeah, we're coming out for uh, the ski season, and it's the 10th anniversary of his death. So there'll be some press around that. Do you think? Yeah. In fact, I've got a partnership with K2, who's is the ski company that he skied for and that we're doing a cross promotion. So I'm going to be touring with them and they actually have a ski that's coming out in his memory. Wow. 10th anniversary ski. And so the book is going to be connected to the ski. Great. Um, so it's all plant like the marketing side's already in the works. Yeah. I mean, there was, I was in touch with these guys. Um, I'm sure a portion of the skis will go to his foundation. Yeah, and actually a portion of the book as well it goes to the foundation. It's great. Because, you know, he's my partner in all this. So. Dude, I feel like I should high-five you. You did it, man. Good. Nice, good job. <laughs> we, I, we should crack a beer. <laughs> my God. What am I doing? I'm doing a stupid podcast. You're me? writing is, books. No, man, my is, God, I'm a loser. No, this is all in the <laughs> well, same I, realm. I got to like, uh, I got to go do something amazing. Good for you, though. Congratulations, man. That's a, it's a huge feat, and I, I can't... Uh, I can't tell you how uh, amazed and just now that I've heard the story and put it all together and it's really about balls and courage, you know, your story, you know, I mean, to do that, you know, it's, it's a, it's putting yourself out there on a, on a a limb that not many people could do when you're dealing with someone's legacy. So, uh, I think, uh, I can't wait to read the book, man. Thanks, man. You got me stoked to read it. Thank you. Thanks. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope I can keep the stoke going, but I will say though that this is, this is all in the same wavelength the podcast oh doing, inside doing, the way <laughs> no, no, no but no but i'm saying that all these creative pursuits i mean yeah it did take courage and balls to go out to do some of these places but i think it's more about it's not that much courage and balls to set up some microphones and a laptop it's more no, 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 no. <laughs> no the point is that you know someone could easily sit back and say oh i want to do this you know, oh, I think oh we gotcha. talk about what we want to do all the time you know but to actually execute on it is such a rare thing and the beautiful thing about executing is that it then encourages you to execute again and again and again and believe in yourself. Um, so I'm just always in awe of people that are pursuing what they want to do without any like outside of, you know, outside encouragement. It's like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. and I'm just going to do it. 
Yeah, I, I probably I jump into things a little blindly. I don't. I'm going to do a podcast, but it just seemed like it was in the wheelhouse of no, what you know. I mean, you, what I needed to do I was like, oh, I'm not an electrician or a carpenter out here, so try and I like it. No, it's you a, know, it's, it's it's a great fit. And it's a good, so hopefully, we keep building it. You know. Oh yeah. <laughs> But uh, listen, man, thank you. We've, we've been talking for a long time. I can't thank you enough. I, can't, I just want to know what's, what's the next book. Are you, do, you, do you have an idea? Well, the next book, I want to take it in a different, um, in a different direction. Uh, I still want to f- profile someone, but I want it to have more of a humanitarian um, theme. You know, I feel like obviously Doug Coombs impacted a lot of people in his life, and, and, and he continues to impact a lot of people. Um, I'd like to take that theme... Um, but follow it in a different way where it has more of a humanitarian, um, you know, service-oriented thing. So I, I, I'm, I've got a few ideas conjuring, but I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for those conversations to, to decide what, what it will be. All right, man. Well, I'm going to take, um, for my Instagram, I'm going to take a picture. I'll do it. Hold on. There it is. Live on Inside the Whale, <laughs> Bobby Cuso. <laughs> Nice. All right, man, we did it. All right, let's crack a beer. All right, there it is again. Funk number 49. What a jam. What a conversation. Rob Cucuzzo, thank you so much for sitting down on Inside the Whale. I can't thank you enough. Uh, intense is just uh, a word that just keeps coming to mind. Uh, you know, your, your commitment to, to seeing this thing through and the story of Doug Coombs and, uh, and keeping that, uh, memory alive is, is amazing. And, uh, I can't thank you enough for just sharing it on Inside the Whale. That's why I'm doing this podcast. It was a great conversation, Rob. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I didn't think I'd end up sharing that story about, uh, Ruta Fox, the woman from Gray Advertising. And uh, I don't know if, if any of you guys ever had an instance where you wish you had spoken up for yourself. And here I am at 41 years old, and I, and I kind of, I actually found Ruta Fox on Facebook, and I started writing a message to her to tell her the way I felt and how I thought she uh, was a real bitch, for lack of better words. You know, here I was, 21, just out of college, trying to get a job, and she just shot it down. A big F you to the aspiring copywriter saying, how did you graduate college? I think the professional way to have conducted herself would have been to nicely pull me aside and say, listen, there's some things you need to work on before you can even attempt it uh, going for an interview. <laughs> but she chose to do it the New York way. And thank you, Ruta Fox. If anyone's listening and knows Ruta Fox, uh, you know how to get in touch with me. I want to have a sit down. Maybe we'll have Ruta Fox on this uh, podcast. Anyway, that's enough rambling. Great episode. Robert Cacuzzo, congratulations on finishing the book. I can't wait to read it. I do want to say that uh, if any of you want to donate money to the Doug Coombs Foundation, it is dougcoombsfoundation.com is a w- uh, website address, and you can donate your money there. And that foundation gives money to lower-income kids so they can start skiing, which is pretty cool. Nice work. All right, folks, that's it. Episode 19 is done. That's a wrap. Thank you again. Let's take us out. Funk number 99 in memory of Doug Coombs. Rocket. Rocket.